Hi, I'm Riddhi Shetty. I work on the Privacy and Data Project here at CDT. Recently, we've been advocating for stronger federal and state guidance and regulations against consumer data harms that limit economic opportunity. You can support this and all we do here at CDT by going to cdt.org slash techtalk and donating. Every donation matters. Thank you for enhancing civil rights and civil liberties in the digital age. Welcome to Tech Talk by CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Jamal Magby, and it's time to talk tech. Here to help us understand more about the capabilities and limitations of automated content analysis are Jasmine McNeely, CDT non-residential fellow and associate professor in the Department of Telecommunication, College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida, and Donaraj Thacker, research director for CDT. Jasmine and Donaraj, thank you so much for joining us today. All right, so to kick us off, can, can you both explain what automated content analysis is? Yeah, maybe I could start if that's okay. And um... Thank you, thank you, Jamal, uh, for hosting this talk. Um, I think this, this the topic is very relevant, right? Automated content analysis has become even particularly relevant in in recent times. I, I mean, there there are statistics that suggest that you know there are like three billion images that are uploaded every day um, on YouTube. Maybe even as much as five hundred hours of video a minute are created, right? So basically, because of the sheer scale of content that's been uploaded. In, in, in addition to like uh, increased calls among governments and policymakers to restrict particular kinds of content, there, there's been a, a, an increased use of these kinds of tools to automatically detect um, content of particular, of particular nature to inform uh, moderation decisions on social networking and other, other services. So, so these, these kinds of tools and understanding what these tools are and their capabilities and limitations is something that we are particularly concerned with. And, it, and we argue that it's really important that other stakeholders like, you know, policymakers and companies themselves understand what's happening here as well. Right. So I, I agree with Donaraj. Uh, I think it's a collection of techniques that uh, allow for the analysis of text, of images, of video, so all different kinds of media that can be found in a digital, so to speak, format or digitized format um, that can then be used for things like content moderation, but also things that marketers want to know about, like sentiment analysis and other kinds of ways of predicting or attaching meaning to the expression. So the visuals, the text, the, the video, all kinds of things. So being able to label it or attach meaning to it automatically or using a set of tools or techniques, and then being able to make that data then available for whatever purpose that an organization or a government or a group wants to use it for. Now, from what I understand, there are both matching and predictive models. Can you explain what these are and, and how they're used? Uh, yeah, sure. I think, um, you know, just following what Jasmine just said in terms of these different kinds of uh, the range of techniques, uh, 
Matching and predictive models are a way of just generally grouping these kinds of different techniques. Uh, most of these techniques rely on some form of machine learning, and that's essentially a, a, a means to like parse through and analyze large amounts of data to, to identify characteristics or relationships or correlations within that data that really are relevant to, to the objective of the model, right? So that could mean like identifying images or particular sounds or video um, that that is uh, that's, that that you know the developers are interested in. And practically speaking, uh, machines can make these kinds of identifications or labeling in, in two broad ways. One is matching, so essentially recognizing something that's identical or similar to something that has seen before, right? And prediction, which is recognizing the characteristics of or features of a piece of content um, that the machine um, that's based on the machine's prior learning, right? And learning from a large amount of data. So matching is basically, have I seen this image or audio video before? Uh, and prediction is really, to what extent does it fit the characteristics of, of an image or audio that, I'm, that I want to, to identify? Right, and, and I would add for prediction, um, the thing about prediction is that uh, the machine can infer values to for missing values. So if there's enough of one kind of characteristic or a set of characteristics that reminds it of something it's seen before, then uh, the predictive model set can say, this will probably end up more like this past thing, even if I don't have the values for these certain characteristics. The other characteristics I do have the value for tell me it's leaning more towards this label or this category or this kind of inference about whatever it is it's making an inference about. Yeah. You know what Jasmine is saying makes me think of, um, if we're thinking of like a practical example, right? Like say you want a model to, to uh, tell you whether an image contains a cat or not, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so you could have a classifier that's, that's developed that way. Essentially, it's making a prediction, right? Based on previous data it has learned from, um, does the image make, uh, contain its cat? And it, it often um, presents that um, analysis in the form of a prediction. And, and, and that's how often, like when it comes to these predictive techniques, um, that's how it's often, in a very simple way, that's how it often works. So it's looking at, Different kinds of shapes and textures and colors that are 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 relevant. But as Jasmine is saying, some sometimes a model might not have all information for a particular variable, like for you know the, what's the color that it's looking for or what the, the shape or so on. And so it kind of will try and fill the gap. But ultimately, it's making a prediction, and that's what um, we have to be clear about, right? That it's it's making a it, in in effect an educated guess as to whether this is. Um, what we are looking for. Jasmine, let me go back to you and I ask, what are some of the limitations um, to automated content analysis? Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the important limitations, there's, there are many limitations, but one of the important limitations deals with just the fact that for the most part, we're making predictions or attempting to match uh, and then categorize and put labels on human communication and human behavior. The problem is humans are not rational. Humans don't act normatively. We don't behave as mathematical models, even though uh, 
you know, organizations and researchers have attempted to put us into mathematical models. We just don't, we just don't behave that way. And so when we lack context, when machines cannot thus out context, then the predictions and the matches that they make uh, are very normative. If I had all the information or all the data, if uh, people behave rationally, if uh, all things were as I wanted them to be, to be, to make this very um, good, educated guess, and this is how humans would behave, but that's not it. Um, uh, a researcher, Desmond Patton at Columbia University, um, uses as an example, looks at how law enforcement attempts to use social media data to make predictions about gang activity. The problem is uh, the, the young people who are they're looking at, they're surveilling online, sometimes, you know what, they throw up language, but they throw up language that is a rap lyrics, right? Yeah. And so uh, without that context, you'd be like, oh, these kids are just super violent. They're just going to, you know, they're just, they're in a fight. But no, these mm -hmm. are song lyrics. Without knowing that, without that context, you have one prediction and one understanding of the message that they've thrown up without understanding the entirety of the context. And then you have, you are able to label them in such a way so as it, so that it hurts them, right? It places them in a category criminal, right? Or gang member or, uh, you know, uh, about to commit an assault or whatever the case may be, which is harmful. It's particularly harmful on groups that are uh, used to being surveilled people of color, um, religious groups, religious minorities, particularly in, in the United States, uh, protesters, members of what, what are called like radical movements or whatever uh, by the U.S. government or, or certain members of the government, right? So these hyper-surveilled groups already, then you're using data, then you're using data, which is obviously historic, all data is historic, but based in a system that has historically marginalized people. So you're just reifying further predictive effects of that data that has already placed criminal or other kinds of labels, deviant labels on them already. And these models are filling in gaps or making predictions about people that further marginalizes them, right? So context is really important. Can we, can we understand what people are talking about. Can we understand what messages are being uh, communicated into what audiences? And can we more adequately and accurately understand all of the things that are being communicated and by who, and um, then really revise or revamp or get rid of some of these predictions or inferences that are made about marginalized communities? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Jasmine. I, I think there, there are huge um, challenges in getting machines to understand context. Um, and without recognizing that limitation, we might jump ahead and uh, put too much value on these kinds of predictions, right? Um, that could have like tremendous negative consequences on people. Um, I think a related kind of limitation here is on the data that's being used to train and develop a lot of these uh, machine learning tools, data that's often um, made disproportionate, disproportionate represents some groups over others in society. And 
what what would happen then is that you're making uh, poor you know poor predictions based on flawed data. And there are lots of examples of how this plays out. For example, like in facial recognition systems, um, which can misclassify people, right? Um, because of a lack of representation of, uh, of, of some groups uh, in that original data set. Um, I, and, I, so, and, and, and there, there are lots of these limitations like data quality, like lack of contest that point to uh, the potential discriminatory outcomes of using these, these kinds of tools. Um, and in our report, do you see what I see? We actually lay out a couple of, several of these as well. So we touched on it a little bit in the in the last answer, but I but I want to just ask, what are some of the risks in implementing some of these automated content moderation tools large scale, and what risks is specific to historically marginalized communities? I, I'm sure there's some. Yeah, you know, I think an inherent risk um, in using machine learning predictions is that, unfortunately, many people think that. Uh, automated tools and machines are infallible and also that they are neutral. And so any predictions or guidance given by a computer, people think is the guidance that should be used. Unfortunately, as we just talked about some of the um, risk of implementing automated content, you know, decision tools or other moderation or other kinds of machine learning predictive tools, we, we know that there are huge risks and these risks are being borne out in the news, I think on a weekly basis, right? Particularly facial recognition, um, other kinds of tools. Uh, and because there are these risks um, in every, almost every place where machine learning or automated tools are being adopted, there are risks. So um, the use of now um, social media data in connection with things like whether or not you're a good risk for loans, like what are you putting, what kind of images and what kind of text are you putting on your social media, right, to, to uh, have you, um, it's part of your kind of credit score in a certain way, or what kind of person are you being predicted by automated tools for, again, historically marginalized communities who already uh, face you know, discrimination in certain ways for things like bank loans, for things like criminal justice in the criminal justice system. These risks are then amplified because many people say, well, you know, the machine said We've taken away the bias because humans aren't there, but so the machine says this, but it, but we know that uh, tools um, and machines and software are not just neutral diviners of data, but that they are reflective of the systems, but also the models um, and values of the creators. And so that is a really important, I think, thing to consider is that that machines aren't neutral. Uh, machines work in systems. Uh, as Zenaraj says earlier, machines use data, um, but also machines use models that are created by somebody. 
And these are really important things because the risks are actually real. Risks of jail, risk of longer sentencing, risk of, of lack of probation, risk of not getting loans, which, which then has further impact, right? So it's not just that you don't get a loan, it's that you don't buy a house in a certain neighborhood. That means we know in the United States that different neighborhoods have even different life expectancies. We have different neighborhoods have different quality of schools, right? So these are long-term impacts that affect uh, marginalized communities. Yeah, I, you know, this is this is such an important point that, that Jasmine is raising here. Um, we, we have to recognize that these limitations exist and they really are going to be amplified when you're talking about using these tools at scale. Um, one of the limitations we didn't get to, but I'll, I'll mention now is explainability, right? How can you explain that, you know, how a machine comes up with a particular decision to a human, to a person? So just to follow Jasmine's example about, you know, like getting a loan or, uh, you know, access to finance or, or things like that, really life changing decisions that, you know, we sometimes rely on these predictive models to, to, to inform um, what happens when they make like dis- decisions that are detrimental to, st- and I, so, so for example, I cannot get access to the kind of finance I want or buy the house I want or things like that because of these, mach- you know, a machine led decision, what recourse do I have? Right. Can I really understand why the decision was made, um, unfavorably for me? Like, do I, does anyone understand, um, so that lack of explainability I mean, I mean, and you know, there's there's a lot of efforts are trying to to unearth that, right, and shed more light on explainability. But right now, it's a huge problem. And if you're then talking about uh, using these these machine tools on a very large scale, you're amplifying a lot the problem around lack of explainability. And if that if if it is going to be that, you know, uh, explainability uh, becomes something that that, that uh, you know, becomes a premium for people that can afford it and have access to recourse and access to understand why things happen to them, as opposed to those that cannot, then you're introducing, um, you're, you're going to be exacerbating existing forms of, of discrimination. So that's a, that's a big problem. So what should companies and, and governments be doing to minimize these risks? I mean, so I think currently some of the methods that governments are attempting to implement are uh, legislation related to explainability, as Danaraj mentioned earlier, but also transparency, um, you know, requiring organizations to disclose certain things, how, what kind of techniques are being used, how data is collected and then used, and by whom or who can access uh, certain kinds of data that they collect. The problem is as Donna said earlier, we talk about explainability, you talk about transparency, you can be as transparent as you want, but if nobody understands what you're talking about, it's very hard for people to self-govern or make decisions about whether or not they really want a certain organization to collect data about them and then use data about them, right? Um, but, but also there's, you know, a newer, I wouldn't say newer, I would say a more assertive call for legislation that just straight up bans the use or some uses of automated tools because 
of the risk associated with them. Those risks related to, like we, we noted earlier, prediction and errors in prediction and errors in matching um, because it's kind of wild. It's still a little bit of the wild west. Um, with respect to some of these tools and how they're being used, but also we also know the impacts. We know that automated tools being used in healthcare, for example, are making really bad decisions about African Americans and what kind of healthcare they should get. We know that automated tools, like you mentioned earlier, and criminal justice system, all different aspects are making really bad predictions or offering really bad guidance about certain kinds of people. And it is uh, having devastating effects. And so there are calls by advocacy groups that say, look, uh, companies should stop using these tools and stop promoting them to governments, but also that our legislators must step in the only, you know, they're the only people that could possibly ban the use of uh, and creation of these kinds of techniques and tools. We've seen those kinds of requests for bans come into fruition in several different municipalities. So Oakland and Berkeley and, um, you know, Cambridge and Somerville, if it's the Boston area, right? But that's very local on a more national level in the United States, there people are calling for the Fed to do something because this is getting, uh, it's already out of control, but even more so as more tools are being created and techniques are being used. Yeah. And you know, you know, Jasmine, I, I worry about the, the like opposite kind of rhetoric that comes even at the federal level, maybe in some state governments or local where, where, there are calls to do some kind of whole scale, a wholesale kind of um, banning of different types of content online, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which then brings the assumption that we need some kind of automated tool, right? So it's like uh, to carry it even further, what would be something that, for example, that we would definitely oppose is some kind of automated content filtering law, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, given all of the kinds of risks that, that, that you were pointing out earlier. So, so that, is some, that is something that, that policymakers, yes, should, should really consider restrictions on these things as opposed to going in the other direction saying, you know what, uh, all, these companies need to ban so on, these kinds of content on a, on a large scale and therefore use these kinds of tools without really being careful about it. That, that is something um, I think we need to be concerned about. Um, and with companies, I think, you know, based on what we said here, I think we really have to go back to basics and companies need to uh, include opportunities for human review and <laughs> bring people back mm-hmm. into the equation, basically, um, when it comes to like, uh, you know, moderating content and kind of be more, as you, you mentioned about transparency and be transparent about how, that, how, how human moderators will work with these automated tools um, to, to, to protect people's rights, you know. Um, I, I also think there are different narratives here that we have these conversations around the risks involved in facial recognition technologies, AI-based tools like that, and so on. Uh, but companies within like um, private sector or company forums, if you will, there is like this kind of uh, pitching or selling of uh, machine learning tools, uh, these technologies, 
has been really, really accurate and really, you know, are we going to solve a lot of problems without any kind of uh, hesitation. Um, so, I, so I worry about these kinds of conversations that are happening, you know, uh, in more like, you know, industry uh, conferences and so on, where, where there's less, um, less criticism, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think companies, governments, they need to be way more critical of, of these tools. So to close us out, and, and Jasmine, I want to start with you. Just any final thoughts on anything we discussed today? Sure. I think, you know, one of the underlying things we've been talking about is about how we communicate about these kinds of tools, whether it's in the kind of automated content analysis realm or machine learning, predictive tools as a whole. But the conversation has to be such that just regular people understand what's going on. Because it's one thing to say, oh, we're using artificial intelligence. And, you know, for many of us, the rhetoric or framing surrounding artificial intelligence has been connected to, you know, science fiction and Star Trek and all these kinds of things that are maybe even Kit, right? Knight Rider. And um, that those all seem good, but like the actual uses of machine learning tools the outcomes are quite different than being able to beam somebody up, right? Or the outcomes are quite different from, a, you know, your car talking to you and there it being no big deal, but that this is actually affecting lives. And so being able to adequately communicate about what's happening, and so maybe that's a, that's a media and tech press or just regular press kind of thing, but also yeah, a... Um, educator kind of thing and researcher kind of thing and advocacy organization kind of thing, which is that we need to be able to communicate uh, adequately and accurately about what the implications of these tools are for everyday people, for just regular folks, and then what we could possibly do about this and how we could um, make sure that the impacts are mitigated or stopped completely in connection to these, you know, very powerful tools that are continuing, continuously, you know, innovative and moving into several different realms. And so I think that's a really important thing that has to happen with respect to, to these kinds of techniques and tools. And Donna Raj, any, any final thoughts on your end? Yeah, I, I, you know, I completely agree with what Jasmine is saying. Maybe what I'll add is that I, going back to this point about um, the perceived objectivity of these kinds of tools, um, and I suppose it links to this larger problem of how we view technologies as being very helpful, um, you know, for for social, economic, or other purposes. And they can be, right? Um, technologies have, 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 you know, um, made, we've made a lot of, of, of advances based on different kinds of technologies. But uh, I think what we keep in mind when we talk about these kinds of automated tools is that, that their intent, what, what they're intended, you know, to do. And if it's simply to just replicate what already exists, which is often the case based on the kinds of data that these models are trained on or the, the ways they're applied, uh, then that then that really falls short. But if they're intended to to actually you know promote some kind of positive change, and that's a different thing. But but just designer designer technology to solve 
problem without considering like what's the ultimate like uh, impact here or intention uh, won't really won't, won't really lead to any kind of positive change. I think I think we have to consider that you know and how what what are the purposes of these tools, um, and that comes into that critical conversation when we when particularly for governments and companies and others to to consider you know from with a critical mind what what are what is going to be the impact of of these kinds of automated tools. Jasmine and Donarash, thank you so much for being here today. If you would like to find out more about CDT's work, please feel free to visit us at cdt.org. I'm Jamal Magby, and thank you for Talking Tech.